Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 17 for our Old Testament Scripture reading. (coughs) Here the psalmist speaks of the great hope that is found in the resurrection to come, the resurrection of the dead, a resurrection that he speaks of in terms of an awakening, an awakening from a deep slumber, the slumber of death. In Psalm chapter 17, a prayer of David Hear a just cause, O Lord, and attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come, and let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, and they are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 for our New Testament Scripture reading and our sermon text this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, as we continue working our way uh, through the great blessings that Jesus pronounces on the citizens of heaven, what we typically refer to as the Beatitudes. We now come to to the sixth of these blessings here in verse 8, where our Savior says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's go before the Lord now and pray that He blesses the reading, but especially the preaching of His Word. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, truly You are good to Israel, to Your church, to those who are pure in heart. We pray that You would be good to us this morning. That You would bless Your Word that we might see our Savior with the eyes of faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. How easy it was for her to be distracted on this particular day. With company coming, she had to ensure that everything was just perfect. The food, the house, the guests, there could be no room for error. Months, perhaps, or weeks had been, she had been preparing for this moment, but even after he arrived, 
Martha still felt her attention being pulled in a thousand different directions. Here, Jesus comes to the house of Martha and her sister. She wants everything to be right. And so she finds herself so often in the kitchen or doing things around the house or making sure that everything is just right while her sister Mary simply sits at the feet of Jesus. Martha becomes disgruntled and upset thinking that Mary has failed to do the right thing. That Mary is not giving due attention to the things that she should give her direction to. And yet she finds, as her Savior speaks to her, that the thing is just, in fact, the opposite. You see, Martha has been distracted, not by sinful things, but by lesser things. She's been distracted by those lesser things that keep her from the joy of simply sitting at the feet of her Savior, the very reason why He had come to visit her that very morning. I think what we see with this story that we are so familiar with, with Mary and with Martha, it gives us a picture of the very thing that Jesus brings into focus in this particular blessing. What a picture Martha gives and illustrates for us of the divided heart. How easy it is to let not simply sinful things, but legitimate cares, anxieties, and troubles worry us and tear us apart and distract us from the very thing that we have been called to as the citizens of a heavenly kingdom. See, our Savior here this morning pronounces a blessing on those who belong to the kingdom of Christ. A blessing of rest and the promise that He gives to those with an undivided heart. I'd like us to consider this blessing in two particular parts. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of the pure heart and what it is that Jesus means here. And secondly, I'd like us to consider the promise given to those who are pure in heart as he speaks of the heavenly sight that awaits. So two things, purity of heart and the heavenly sight. Of course, when Jesus pronounces that blessing on the pure of heart, we have to ask ourselves, what is meant by the heart? And I think for so many of us, our attention is drawn back to that book that we all read together this time last summer. The heart is that scriptural term that speaks to the totality of human personhood. We might describe it as the command center of the individual. It is that rich complex that governs the things that we think, the things that we love, and the things that we choose. And when we consider how complex the human heart is, how rich it is in its complexity, how tightly bound together it is in its unity, we can see how quickly it is that things can begin to break down particularly when we have those disordered loves, as Augustine would put it. When we have scattered thoughts. When we have a will that is both weak to do the things that God commands and is headstrong to do the things that God forbids. When the cares and the riches of this world seem to pull us apart in every direction, both from without and within, it is hard to maintain focus, even on the things that we do love, isn't it? We might call the heart the centerpiece of human personality.
personality. But the truth is, and we all know this from human experience, that sin has so disordered and disrupted our hearts. It has fragmented the human center, as it were, leaving us feeling as men and as women divided against our very selves. We want to give our attention to one thing, and yet we find our thoughts pulled in another direction. We end up doing one thing, and yet while we are doing some things, we find our thoughts so easily distracted towards other things. This is what the prophet Isaiah condemns the nation of Israel for. The people, my people honor me with, my, with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's the picture of a man who has uh, been disoriented. It's a computer on the fritz. Such is the nature of sin. It has polluted the human heart. Every human heart. It is a, a cesspool that springs up from the mind, the will, and the affections. It pollutes everything that we say we do, that we will and we think, be it evil thoughts or slander or envy, murder, those disordered sexual desires and deeds, the matters of laziness and of theft. When we consider God's requirements and what it means to be a people of God and to walk in His ways, we find that we not only do the things that He forbids, but we also fail to do the things that He positively commands. Because of sin, the heart has become defiled. It's so infected the human heart that the heart itself is capable of deceiving itself. Isn't that what the prophet Jeremiah says? The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's the great danger of sin is it has infected every human heart that we have deceived ourselves. Our hearts have deceived us. Where we can be engaging in gross sinful deeds and not even realize it. Because we have convinced ourselves otherwise. Like the Pharisees in the New Testament, we have become... Uh, we have, we have, we've treated sin too lightly. We've become convinced that sin is an external matter. Uh, we see uh, a, a sore or a welt on our arm and we put a band-aid on it thinking that that will solve the problem, spiritually speaking, when we fail to ride, uh, realize that that's symptomatic of a deeper cancer that resides in the human heart. And the spiritual remedy that Christ requires is not simply slapping a band-aid on individual and isolated sins, uh, but dealing with sin at its very root. David recognized this problem. You remember we talked about this last week in Psalm 51, where here's a man who has committed gross sexual immorality and adultery, forced himself upon another man's wife, and then had that, uh, that, that man put to death excuse me, murdered, and then he covers it up. You see, after being exposed for all of these heinous sins, what David needed was not a better PR crew. What David needed was a change of heart. It's the very thing he prayed. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew that right spirit within me. Rectify what has been disordered. David recognizes the need that only Christ can provide, the need of new creation. Such as the great problem of the human race, 
that because our sins have defiled us, we need to be made clean. So long as sin remains, man remains exiled from the heavenly courts. Who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord, the psalmist asks. It is only the man with clean hands and a pure heart. Purity here then is virtually synonymous with holiness. Without such holiness, no man is able to see the Lord. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. But when Scripture speaks of purity of heart, it does not simply mean the need to be cleansed of sin. When Scripture speaks of purity of heart, it means more than simply that the heart has been cleansed from the filth of sin. It also refers to a heart that is now undivided by cares and distractions. Consider what James writes in James chapter 4 when he speaks to the church saying this. He says, Cleanse your hands, O ye sinners, again speaking of sin's defilement. But then what does he say? He then says, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James himself recognizes that purity of heart deals not only with defilement, but also dividedness. Purity of heart consists not only in spiritual cleanliness, but also we might put it like this in terms of moral clarity. What does it mean to be double-minded? It means to be distracted, to have yourself torn apart pulled apart in so many different directions, to have your thoughts, your loves, and your will pulled in every which way, even in different ways, all at the same time. When we read the Old Testament, this is the great tragedy of Solomon's life. I'd encourage you to go and at some point this week read 1 Kings 1-11. to Read one of the greatest tragedies of the Old Testament, the tragedy of King Solomon. It tells of the rise and fall of Israel's great king. And yet, in this passage, in those 11 chapters, there is a controlling literary device that narrates the whole course of the passage. Because nearly every chapter gives us a pulse on Solomon's heart. Sometimes, Our English translations in those chapters will translate it as mind. The Hebrew, that word there in all 11 chapters is Solomon's heart. As Solomon is enthroned as king, he is said to be the man who loves the Lord with all of his heart. With the whole heart. A heart that is undefiled and undivided by the cares and distractions and the treasures of this world. In chapter three, when the Lord, uh, in chapter three, when the Lord appears to Solomon, the Lord says, "Solomon, ask what you will." And Solomon says, "Lord, I need a hearing heart, a heart that is disposed to hear the Lord's commands, one that is disposed to heeding the word of God." We are told in response to this that the Lord broadens Solomon's heart. In other words, the Lord makes Solomon wholeheartedly wise. A man who is unsurpassed in his wisdom, knowledge, and discretion as he learns what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord here in this life. Solomon, in fact, in chapter 8, recognizes the plague of sin that marks his own heart. 
not only his own heart, but the heart of the nation. So he prays when the temple is completed that the Lord would hear from heaven and turn the heart of the nation back to the Lord God of heaven and earth. Then comes the great tragedy. Here comes the turn in the narrative. As in chapter 9, we begin to read of a king who has a divided heart, who begins to amass great hordes of gold, many horses for his own army, and many wives for himself. The very three things that Moses said the king of Israel should not have The law of the king, Deuteronomy chapter 17. The three things Israel's king should not do is what? He should not amass much gold. He should not amass many horses. and He should not take to himself many wives. Why? Lest his heart be turned away from the Lord. And that's the very thing that we find in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Though Solomon begins his life as a man with wholehearted devotion to the Lord by the end of his life, the author of First Kings says that the heart of Solomon is turned away from the Lord by his many wives as he begins to pursue other gods, as he begins to put his trust in wealth, in the strength of power, and in pleasure. Here's a man whose heart has been divided by earthly loves and loyalties, and so he turns from the Lord to serve these other gods. What we find here is that the impure heart not only defiles, but it distracts. Sin not only ensnares, it entangles. When Scripture speaks of purity of heart, it means not only cleanliness, but simplicity. In terms of a single-hearted, single-minded devotion, purity of heart attests to the heart that is steadfast and fixed, a heart that remains undivided, as opposed to the double-minded man. It attests to a heart that is not shaded by hypocrisy or spurred on by hidden or ulterior motives. That's what the first commandment gets at, isn't it? You shall love the Lord with all your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. When the Lord says this, it's not simply that you should put the Lord first and then you can worship all these other gods so long as they remain in second place. That is not the point of the great commandment. Is that there is no other rival that stands before the living God. Quite literally, the Hebrew, you shall have no other gods before my face. You shall have no other gods in my presence. As our Savior Himself says, no man can serve two masters. He will find that his heart is divided and conflicted. And at the end of the day, he will end up serving one and rejecting another. Elsewhere, Jesus says, and speaking of discipleship, no man who puts his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Again, it's a picture of a man with divided loyalties. A man who says, well, I've put my hand to the plow, but he continues like, like Lot's wife to, to look back on the things that are being left behind. That is a picture of an impure heart. It's a picture of, of a divided heart. You know, the Danish philosopher of the 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard, in commenting on this, describes purity of heart in this way. He says, purity of heart is this. 
purity of heart is to will one thing. What is, it the one, what is the one thing that the pure heart wills? What is the one thing that the pure heart desires? The pure heart desires God and God alone. Who do I have in heaven but you? David asks. There is nothing in heaven or on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. See, what Jesus is doing here now is He is blessing the pure in heart. And He's pronouncing a blessing on those whose hearts remain steadfast and fixed on the Lord and the Lord alone. And He does this. He pronounces this blessing by giving a great promise that to those whose heart is pure, they will be given their heart's desire. The pure in heart shall see God. We see hints of this in the Old Testament. Again, Jesus is simply collating and collecting the teachings of Scripture. Jesus should know He Himself is the author of Scripture. David himself hints at this in Psalm 18 when he says, with the pure you, O Lord, you show yourself pure. And yet with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. It's as if fallen humanity takes what they want, the picture that they want of God, and they superimpose it onto God. And so the man with the impure heart sees what festers in his heart and he projects it onto God and God seems to him a cruel master. Yet to the man of a pure heart, the Lord reveals Himself as He really and truly is. One who is pure and sinless. And what we see, what Jesus is saying here, Simply put, here and elsewhere is that God gives people their heart's desire for good or for ill. It's the great and terrible judgment that is proclaimed and pronounced upon the nations in Romans chapter 1. Three times Paul says that the nations who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have worshipped the creature instead of the Creator, three times the Lord responds, by saying, okay, you want it, fine, you can have it. And three times in verses 24, 26, and 28, it says God gave them over to their heart's desire. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to those dishonorable passions, and to the debased mind. The Lord says, you, you, you love these things, you want these things, fine, you can have them, but they will, spend, uh, they will spell out your eternal destiny. And they will spell certain doom for you. The great news of the Gospel that we have here is that the King of Heaven has not left us to our heart's desire. Here, He reclaims a people for Himself and He changes our hearts. By the work of His Spirit, He implants in us new desires. He gives us new hearts. And in giving us new hearts, He gives us newly ordered affections where we desire new things. And then He promises to grant those things, those new desires that are in our hearts. 
He speaks and shines the light of the gospel in our hearts. He delivers us from our own corrupted desires. Christ speaks and He washes us clean. And for the citizen of heaven, He blesses us. He implants those new desires in us. He reorders and rectifies our hearts. And then He promises to fulfill those new desires that He puts in us. And so we can, with the psalmist, claim the great promise of Psalm 37 to delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. We find that the one who delights himself in the Lord, what is his great desire? His great desire is the Lord. The psalmist is not saying delight yourselves in the Lord and He'll give you all these lesser things. He'll give you fame, money, riches, wealth, power, or status. No, he says if you delight yourself in the Lord, the thing you're going to want is the Lord. And guess what? This is the great promise. He will not leave that desire unfulfilled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus has already told us, for they shall be satisfied. Here we have a Savior who promises to give you Himself fully, holy, without pollution, without corruption, without distraction, without division. It is the reason why we were made. It is the reason why our hearts are so restless. Because we will only find our rest We will only find true rest when we rest in the Lord God Almighty. God has made us for a purpose. Man's chief end, his chief goal is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Where we find that the promised reward at the end of our days is neither fame nor riches, where our end goal and our chief delight is not found in beauty or power, or cultural clout or prestige, is nothing less than God Himself. Fear not, Abram, the Lord says. I am your shield, and I am your exceedingly great reward. The Lord is my portion, the Lord is my inheritance. And so often we find our desires are too, too earthly minded. We've aimed too low in the things that we ought to desire. We want the gifts, but we don't want the gift giver. The one who is the source of all life and goodness and blessing. It is true that only the pure of heart can ascend Zion's hill. But the great proclamation here is that the king of Zion is the one who alone is pure. And yet because he has ascended Zion, so he has ascended on high, that by his death and his resurrection, he has been vindicated as the sinless son, the one who truly has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who had unfettered devotion, who obeyed his father fully unto death. Even death on a cross, the Lord has rewarded him by placing him at his right hand. And now that Christ has ascended, as the book of Hebrews tells us, Christ has opened up a new and living way that those with defiled hearts, those with impure hearts could be made clean and could be granted access into the heavenly courts that we 
might draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Though we hear of Christ in the Gospel, though we see through a mirror darkly in this world as a pilgrim people making its way to the heavenly city, we see that Jesus here holds out the promise of a coming day when our faith will be made sight. When we will no longer see Christ in the mirror of Scripture, but there is coming a day when we will actually see Him face to face and it will be transformative. David himself, anticipating this day, says, when I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. I will finally see my Savior. This is the great hope that ought to purify our hearts as we make preparation through this earthly wilderness to reach the gates of heaven. So often, there are so many preachers these days who preach in such a way that set our sights on lesser things. That God becomes a means to an end. The pursuit of God becomes a means to earthly fame or treasure. When, when God is the end itself. God is our chief end. God is our ultimate reward. Anything else that happens is just filler space. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And though we are His children now, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we do know this, that when Christ appears, John says, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we will see Him as He is. That the day that Christ appears again from heaven, the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. So transformative will be that day. At the very sight of our Savior, will change even these earthly bodies from corruptible to incorruptible. It's the difference between the, the acorn and the oak tree. As Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Who here, never, seen, never seeing an oak tree, would look at an acorn and say, oh, that one day this little acorn is going to become this massive oak that provides so much shade from the heat. And yet in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that is what this body looks like and compared to the resurrected bodies, the very things that we await on that day, that, that, that day that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, the very glories that the Lord has prepared for those who wait for Him. That the resurrection will be such a transformation that it will be organic. There will be great continuity be resurrected to the, with these self-same bodies, but it'll be so much more substantive, not less. As John says, 1 John chapter 3, he who thus hopes in Christ will purify himself with these precious promises. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake from the slumber of death, I will be satisfied with your likeness. 
here we find the great promise of our Savior that we will be given our heart's desire. It's the great promise to those whose desire is Christ, and it's a great warning for those who desire lesser things. Because as Romans 1 says, the Lord will hand over the nations to the, to the gods of their bellies as well. And it'll, something that will, it'll be something that will terminate in their destruction. See, nothing else than the prospect of the sight of our Savior should satisfy us. This is part of the task of preaching, I think. That there, there should be such a heavenly-minded character to preaching that it should make everything else in this world seem irrelevant. It should remind us that this earth that we are passing through is transitory. That this is, as Hebrews 3 describes it, a barren wilderness compared to the glory that is to come. That we should not be distracted by the riches of this earth, by the pleasures of Vanity Fair, by the prospect of all the various toys and gadgets and gimmicks that this world has to offer, but rather that we should set our sights on the great promise, even though we have not seen it yet with our eyes, that it is still set forth in Scripture itself, that God sets these promises and says, He who hopes in these things, He who purifies his heart, He who removes these distractions, will be fixated with the Lord Jesus Christ And those who are pure of heart are blessed, for there is coming a day when they will see God face to face. Purity of heart wills one thing. That is to see our Redeemer face to face. The stuff of earth is unable to satisfy. God has placed eternity in man's heart. Nothing less than the eternal God can satisfy that God-shaped hole that resides in the heart of every man, woman, and child. We sung a few moments ago one of my favorite hymns, The, the Sands of Time Are Sinking, and there's that great line that the, on, on the great wedding day, the, the day when uh, the bride of Christ, when the church sees her Savior, the bride's not going to be concerned with her own garment. As white and as pure as it's going to be, She's not going to be sitting there going, look how fancily dressed I am. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the King of grace. Not at the crown He gives, but on His pierced hand. For the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. See, when we see Christ, who is our chief end, our shield, and our great reward, nothing else will matter. Heaven will not be heaven apart from Christ, because Christ Himself is heaven itself. For He is our heavenly inheritance. And this is the great promise and blessing that Jesus gives to His church. That His Spirit works to make us pure in heart, to instill us those desires to see Christ with a great promise that He will not leave those desires unfulfilled. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that our joy would be unmixed with the pleasures of this life. We pray that we would seek everlasting joy only in Christ alone. 
Purify our hearts that we might not be distracted by these earthly things. We pray that we would seek to love You with our whole hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.